Good, good afternoon, everyone. Good to see uh, friends and uh, familiar faces in the audience. I think we're very uh, lucky uh, today to have Mark Valerie speaking on Oman's foreign policy and the Southern Caboose. Independent, but to what extent? We shall find out uh, in the next uh, few minutes. And uh, Mark will speak about 30, 40 minutes, and then we'll have questions afterwards. This is on the record. I am uh, Toby Dodge, who is I am the director of the Middle East Center with Professor of International Relations at LSE. More importantly for today's event, Mark Vader is the senior lecturer of the political economy of the Middle East and director of the Center for Health Studies at the University of Exeter, where I was actually yesterday, making sure we had the reputation I claim. And the weather was much nicer next to than it is here, so uh, uh, I don't know what that tells us, that's why he's down there and not where he can be over. So he got his PhD in 2005, Monsieur Poe in Paris. And uh, uh, the book uh, is, uh, is co-editor of Business Politics in the Middle East with Hearst OUP in 2013. So recommending with her, a great publisher. And uh, he's the author of more importantly of Oman Politics Society in the Caboose State, the Columbia University Press, and, and uh, Hearst in 2009. So we're very privileged to hear what Mark will tell us about Oman for the next 40 minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. Um, thank you very much, Kobe, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm trying to not to talk too much, uh, and in order to give the space for questions and discussions, I think that's probably more interesting. So, um, at the end, as you know, at the end of 2030, uh, and that may be one of the reasons why uh, I was invited to talk about it. Um, Oman uh, whose uh, credo is usually to uh, attract limited attention on the global arena, uh, made international uh, headlines on two occasions. Uh, in November 2013, when the interim Geneva Agreement on the Iranian nuclear program was signed between the P5 plus 1 and Iran, the US media revealed that secret, secret meetings uh, between US and Iranian officials have been placed in Muscat since March uh, 2013. A few days later, in preparation for the 34th Gulf Cooperation Council Summit in December that year, the only minister responsible for foreign affairs, Yusuf bin Arabi, declared that Oman would not prevent uh, the upgrading of GCC into a union of six, six countries, but would simply not be part of it if it happens. That, this was the second such statement by Oman. In 2012, already, Yusuf bin Alawi had already said that, uh, to an Omani newspaper uh, that there is no Gulf Union, I quote, there is no Gulf Union, the commission to study the project no longer exists, and the union exists now only among journalists. So these successive revelations uh, can be understood as part of Oman's track record of mediation initiatives in regional crisis, and more generally in the perspective of Oman's pragmatic foreign policy towards its neighbors. Diplomacy has always been conceived by uh, Sultan Raouz within the broader and priority framework of the regime's stability in the troubled regional arena. At the end of the 90s, uh, in a group called Oman and Octavus, Kelvin Allen and Lynn Rigsby uh, wrote that, I quote, Oman's foreign policy is that of Sultan Raouz and his interpretation of the state's national interest. I will. I, um, I think it's uh, an important point, but I think that we can uh, discuss about it. 
When the first government was constituted, uh, I mean, as an illustration of this point that Sotong, uh, that Oman's foreign policy is mainly the one of Sotong Kabus, we can have we can come back on the report of uh, foreign ministers in Oman. When the first government was constituted in 1972. Uh, the ruler kept the position of Minister of Foreign Affairs, while one of his cousins, Saifat Ibn Mahmoud, had the official but misleading title of Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. Saifat uh, was replaced in 73 by Qais al Zawawi, and in 82 by Yusuf bin Alawi, the, the former under secretary at that time, who is now the minister responsible for foreign affairs, so he has been in position since 1972. Uh, 82, sorry. Yusuf bin Alawi, and it's very important to mention, is Minister Responsible for Foreign Affairs, uh, and not Minister of Foreign Affairs or Foreign Minister uh, properly, which is a significant illustration of the role of the ruler. Kabuz has been convinced soon that uh, Oman's diplomacy had to be determined according to the necessity of internal stability. Um, how could the international environment uh, impact on internal stability, I think, in two ways. First, by foreign interference into Omani internal affairs. One key element of Oman foreign policy was to prevent foreign actors, or has been to prevent foreign actors, uh, countries or other political organizations, from interfering into uh, their internal affairs. Um, and the second element is the uh, regional instability. Oman has always perceived, I think, political instability in the Gulf and West Asia as a factor feeding into Oman internal instability, or at least as a factor threatening the country's internal stability. Thus, Oman has constantly worked to maintain stability in the region, sometimes by taking initiatives in international crises in order to open negotiations, as we will see later. The third uh, important point that I want to concentrate here today is, the, is that according to me, the price for this independent foreign policy towards its neighbor has been the country's unquestioned political and military dependence on Britain and the US. Uh, it is necessary to keep in mind that independent policy towards its neighbor could never have been possible uh, in Oman without the privileged partnership with the US and the UK, especially the UK. And this is the third pillar, according to me, of the Oman foreign policy. Um, given Oman's strategic uh, importance to the security of the entire Gulf, controlling as it does the Strait of Hormuz, Britain and the US have shared Muscat's aversion for any disruption of its internal status quo and wish to prevent any contamination of Omani territory by unwanted foreign influence. So this would be my three parts. The first one is that uh, the efforts to preserve regional stability. The second one, the efforts to prevent uh, internal, uh, international or foreign interference into the country. And the third one, the special relations with the UK and especially the UK. The, the first part is that, yeah, this, uh, this efforts to preserve regional stability. Um, I think that it's very important to keep in mind that there is a perception according to, even if I don't like uh, I mean, uh, psychological politics or anything like this, but uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that there is a feeling of political vulnerability in Oman because of the instability of the region and because also of Gulf War and of other events like this. 
So this perception of political vulnerability uh, in a region disrupted by recurrent convulsions explains Omani pragmatism in the Indonesian arena. Omani initiatives to encourage diplomatic rapprochement between uh, Pakistan and India in 85 and to open negotiations during the Qatar Bahrain crisis in 86 demonstrated this approach. When Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, um, Oman disapproved of this as a violation of international law. However, it was not willing to agree uh, to a military solution and didn't break uh, off relations with Baghdad. Oman attempted to initiate in the to mediate in the crisis in November 1990, uh, uh, when the then Iraqi Minister for Affairs Tariq Aziz made the first official Iraqi visit to GC State Island in Kuwait since the invasion. <coughs> As for the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, Sultan Qaboos welcomed the 1978 candidate agreement and the 1979 uh, Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty and refused to participate in the Arabic summit that expelled Egypt uh, in March 1979. This report provides closer ties uh, with the US and Egypt, as we will see later. In April 1994, the then Israeli Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, Bailey, participated in talks in, in Oman. This constituted the first official visit by an Israeli minister to Gulf State since uh, 1948. In 1996, uh, two years later, Oman and Israel opened trade offices uh, that were closed in 2000. And Omani and Israeli foreign affairs uh, officials have regularly met, uh, unofficially of course, since then. This pragmatism was also present uh, throughout Oman's relation with Yemen, for instance. Diplomatic and economic exchanges were started with South Yemen very early, so from uh, the late 80s. And Oman's first informal contacts took place with the Soviet Union uh, in November 85. Not only did the Sultan consider Moscow as an instigator for detente uh, in, the, in South Yemen, but this was also an occasion for him to strengthen stability in Dovar, obviously, and demonstrate the independence of his diplomacy vis-à-vis <coughs> other GCC countries. In 94, when the civil war broke out against Yemen, uh, uh, again in Yemen, the Sultan initiated talks between the two, two sides in Salana, in the south of Oman. In 1976, Kabus invited the Gulf countries ministers um, of foreign affairs, the future GCC states plus Iraq and Iran, to discuss a regional joint security policy, so very early, 1976. At the Abu Dhabi uh, summit that established the GCC in 1981, uh, Oman reiterated this proposal uh, for close security and business collaboration among the six countries that would be based on a special partnership with the US. But one said it opposed the transformation of the organization into an anti-Iran coalition. And that's very important. Um, Sultan Qaboos eternal gratitude uh, for decisive military effort from the Shah of Iran uh, during the Dofa war was clearly uh, a crucial factor here. Less, uh, Oman has always been less inclined than its GCC uh, counterparts to see in its domestic Shia minority um, an Iranian uh, fifth column. And Kabul didn't break, for instance, Kabul didn't break, the, we can talk about that, about Shia minority in, in Oman because it's very important. Uh, Kabul didn't consider uh, this minority as, uh, as I said, a fifth column. 
uh, and contrary to other countries could have uh, seen it. And Kabul didn't break with diplomatic relations with Tehran uh, after the 1979 Iranian Revolution. He considered that he had no interest in presenting Iran uh, as the sole source of regional tensions <coughs> because such an attitude could not lead to long-term stability and mutual cooperation. Long-term stability, again, in the perspective of regional stability, meaning a uh, factor to uh, improve for internal stability. In 1987, the Fulton Special Representative acted to smooth the way for diplomatic contacts between Iraq and Iran during the war. And later, Oman tried to convince Tehran uh, to approve the UN resolution, putting an end to the war between the two countries. It also offered to act as a go-between to help improve U.S.-Iran relations in uh, 1987. So the, the, what we have seen in 2013 is not new, as you can see. It, um, in March 1991, Oman hosted a meeting at which Saudi-Iranian diplomatic relations were restored. In September 1992, this led to an agreement between Oman and Iran to increase trade and economic cooperation. A memorandum of understanding was signed in 1998 uh, to combat smuggling activities across the Strait of Hormuz. Since the 90s, uh, the end of the 90s, official visits at ministerial level and below between the two countries take place on a uh, weekly or semi-monthly basis. Oman's uh, increasing dependence on Iran for gas has given it a particular interest in maintaining good relations with Tehran. In 2006, uh, agreement on oil and gas cooperation was signed, uh, allowing for Oman's investments in Iran's hydrocarbon sector, but also the construction of a, a gas pipeline between Iran and Oman, and the joint development of gas. <coughs> As you know, in 2009, Sultan Kabul paid a three-day state visit to, to Tehran to promote trade between the two countries. Um, this first visit by the Sultan to Iran since the overthrow of the Shah was followed by another one in 2013, so last year, uh, last summer. In August 2010, Oman signed a defense cooperation agreement with Iran, which is very important to, to keep in mind. And uh, two months ago, yeah, in March, three months ago, two months ago, Iran's President Hassan Rouhani um, paid his first official visit to an Arab country since uh, he took the position by uh, visiting Moscow. Uh, the gas deal, um, on this occasion, a gas deal was signed uh, between Iran and Oman, um, which means supply, uh, that Iran would supply uh, Oman annually uh, via uh, a new pipeline linking southern Oman to the port of Tohar, and the pipeline could be opened uh, according to the plans in 2017. Iran also unveiled uh, plans to build uh, uh, an Athens hospital in Mossad, where uh, many staff, I mean most of the staff, would be Iranian uh, uh, doctors. This is linked also to the fact that Oman, Oman has acted as a go-between in securing the release of U.S. nationals, of course, as you know, uh, held by Iran, as well as Iranian nationals detained by Britain and the U.S. In 2010 and 2011, Oman successfully negotiated the release uh, of three U.S. tourists arrested by the Iranian security forces for allegedly crossing in Iran illegally. Um, that, so there are a number of, um, of cases like that where uh, Oman acted as a go-between. Um, 
And in both US and Iranian minds, it was um, it was good for, I mean, it was a way to show that Oman could act as a discrete and neutral uh, intermediary. In an interview with a US journalist in 2012, Sotong contended that Iran was not seeking conflict with the US, which is quite an interesting uh, uh, assertion. Oman, Oman uh, supports Iran's use of, officially use of nuclear energy for peaceful purposes and opposes the use of force against uh, that country. However, Mossad um, doesn't support Iran's claim to sovereignty over Abu Musa and the Greater and Lesser Chang Islands so, and, the, and the Persian Gulf. And um, as you know, following the closure of Iranian and British uh, diplomatic missions in London and Tehran uh, in 2011, Oman was representing Iran in Britain. Between, that was between June 2012 and last February, when Britain and Iran agreed that diplomatic ties would again be made direct between the two countries. So this is the first um, part of it. Uh, the second element, the second pillar of Omani diplomacy, I think, is the, the, the will to preserve a national territory from any foreign interference. As you know, communism um, was for long used as a label by the Omani authorities to discredit any people questioning the current political model. Contrary to, for instance, there are very interesting elements about that, contrary to its GCC uh, neighbors, Oman has been reluctant to grant, to grant work permits uh, for, for a long time to Nepalese, to Palestinians, to Syrians, to Yemenis, because of its obsession with the danger of the country being affected by socialist ideas. This war on communism uh, even led Oman to establish unofficial diplomatic relations with what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, uh, before 1980. Um, and as you may know, a number of uh, former Rhodesian officers served in the Sultan's armed forces during the Doha War. And to buy and, uh, it even led Oman to buy weapons from apartheid South Africa, despite the embargo. Nowadays, it's the fight against Islamism uh, that is invoked by the regime to condemn without uh, distinction every uh, breach of national security. Um, as, a, as an illustration of this will to preserve the country from or the territory from uh, any foreign interference, we can have we have examples of, for instance, of the fact that the Sultanate usually starts Ramadan, uh, the, the, the month of Ramadan, one day later than Riyadh. Um, or, uh, I mean, the fact was fixing that date proclaimed by the Mani IS uh, religious authorities have a clear political significance, obviously. Similarly, Muscat has never joined OPEC out of the desire to keep Oman, uh, independ Oman's independence in working out its energy and budget needs, an independence which is, according to me, much more symbolic than real. Um, on this uh, issue of foreign interference into uh, internal affairs, I think the UA-Oman relations is particularly interesting. I think uh, it could make a lecture by itself, but I just want to focus on a few dimensions of it. Um, as you know, uh, the, the region, which is now called uh, Alain or Bouraimi Oasis, has been um, the place for a game of influence 
for many years, for, for even centuries, uh, of the struggle for supremacy between Americans and British, uh, later on between Saudis and Omanis, and then between Oman and the UAE. Um, um, in 72, an international border was created for the Buraini Moazis. That is the town of Buraini on the Omani side and the town of Alain on the UAE side. Till recently, there has never been a physical border between the two towns, the twin towns, because this, is, this constitutes an oasis by itself. Um, it was historically as the same unit of settlement and the same group of populations. So the idea was to wait until 1974. Uh, before recognizing the shared sovereignty of Abu Dhabi and Malkat on this, on this area. Um, Malkat refused until the 90s, uh, for example, to, ma to maintain full diplomatic relations with the UAE. And that's very interesting to notice. Because of this idea that the relationship between the Sultan of Malkat and these regions, what is called now, who it was called Sahel Arman, uh, so the, the coast of Oman was so close historically that it was not necessary to appoint an ambassador. Oman didn't open an embassy in uh, Abu Dhabi before uh, 1987. The first ambassador actually arrived in 92. Between the UAE and Oman, uh, tension reached its height at the end of 1977 uh, between Oman and Hassan Kaima about sovereignty over, over a small coastal trip. trip. Uh, armed clashes happened even in December 1977, and a large number of Omanis uh, who were serving in the UAE Defense, Corp, uh, Defense Forces at that time refused to confront Omani troops. After more than one year of negotiations, so in early uh, 1979, Rasat Khaimah and Oman, through the mediation of the rule of Dubai, agreed to adopt specific cases in the demarcation of their borders. The 90s marked the beginning of a new era in Oman-UA relations. The two heads of state embarked on a regular visit to each other's countries. Sheikh Zayed's attempt to foster relations with Muscat resulted from the fact that there were thousands of Omanis living in the UAE, including many serving in the, in the UAE forces, uh, military and security forces. Sheikh Zayed understood that he had no interest in maintaining tensions, obviously. And the 77 incident that I just mentioned uh, provided further motivation to that. As for the Omani side, uh, Fabus became aware that too much inflexibility would have made economic and social cooperation with the UAE, which was vital for Oman and which is still uh, more difficult. In April 1992, when the first Oman ambassador was, uh, arrived in Delhi, uh, Oman and UAE citizens were granted permission to move freely across the border. And the Joint Commission was entrusted uh, with examining the border issue. Uh, interestingly, in 1993, so the following year, an official from the Omani Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, declared, I quote, that Oman and the Emirates were twin palm trees on the same land, while in Dubai, the Daily Al Khalish, at the beginning of the negotiation, had this headline One Nation, Two States. Oman's agreement with the UAE on the demarcation of the border uh, was reached in June 2002 only. And this agreement was later expanded and a final uh, draft later signed in 2008. However, relations with the UAE, between the UAE and uh, Oman have deteriorated significantly uh, since 2003. After the UAE armed forces dismissed a large number of Omani soldiers uh, that it employed. 
out of the perception again that such a presence could have adverse effects in case of UAE Oman new political tensions. This was followed by increased tensions uh, on the border, symbolized by the UAE's installation of a fence along the UAE Oman border in, this, in uh, the oasis of Oraini. The official reason uh, invoked by the UAE was that um, uh, was the criticism uh, towards the fact that Oman was con not controlling its uh, was not uh, strong enough on the uh, control of migrations from uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan uh, of people crossing Oman going to the UAE. The UAE considered yeah, that they were not doing, Oman was not doing enough uh, to fight these illegal, illegal immigrants. And from the Omani side, it was very clear that there was not, I mean, there were, uh, there were policies to, to fight these illegal immigrations. But there was an understanding that many people were only crossing the territory to go to the UAE. So that was maybe not the most important priority for Oman. Um, more generally, I think it's important to keep in mind that the northern part of Oman uh, is strongly extraverted towards the UAE, uh, economically, culturally, uh, for many, uh, by many elements. The UAE represents a geographical sales uh, outlet for the Omani exporting companies. The UAE is the first economic partner of Oman at the moment, uh, with 27% of its importation in value and 70% of its non-oil exports. Um, this is also, uh, I mean, UAE is also uh, a place where many northern Omani individuals and families of all social conditions go at weekends. Uh, to have fun on the occasion of commercial deals. And obviously, many Omanis in the, in the north of Oman uh, are working uh, in the UAE at the moment. Last but not least, we have to keep in mind that um, more than 8,000 Omani students were registered in UAE universities in 2011. That is um, uh, approximately 50, more than 50%, 55% of all Omani students abroad. Uh, this is for different reasons. For instance, I mean, technical reasons. The, these people could not get access into Sultan Qaboos University. Or for financial reasons, uh, inability to pay uh, for uh, education in private Oman institutions. Also for personal reasons, the paucity of reasoning regularly to Oman, and for cultural reasons, the fact that Oman and the UAE have the same that's the culture, and that, that families consider that it's easy to send uh, their uh, children to uh, universities in, in the UAE. And what's interesting is that um, I think 70 or 75% of these urban students in the UAE are females. Um, what is interesting in that is that um, they have, we need to keep in mind that there has always been a um, uh, an historical obsession uh, in uh, the mind of market rulers um, about the fact that the population of Northern Oman could escape the alliance, the political loyalty of, uh, of Mossad. And uh, uh, that's inherited from the fact that obviously Saudis uh, have uh, repeated their uh, interest. Uh, in the Alain Borani uh, oasis since the end of the 19th century, and also Riyadh's active support uh, to the rebellion of the land uh, in uh, Jebel Attar, so the interior of Oman in the 50s. 
And nowadays, uh, there is this perception that many Omanis are more interested in working, uh, in uh, going uh, in family networks and so on, towards the UAE more than Mossad. And it's obvious that when you go to Bohemi, when you go to Shinas, and even so hard, uh, people are not going to Mossad mainly if they are not working there. Uh, they, they have no reason to go to Mossad. Uh, their family connections are towards the north, and their working connections are mainly uh, towards the other side of the border. Um, there is a quotation for um, uh, a civil servant uh, from China who explained to me, for instance, that uh, that was in 2005. 80% uh, of the population in Shinas, that is the, the town which is the northest in Oman, uh, uh, close to the border of the UAE, 80% uh, of the population is dependent on the UAE. People are working in Fujairah or Hofwakan construction projects, or even in Sharjah and Dubai. Local shares are linked to Sharjah and Dubai ruling families, by marriage, family agreement, or business. The town of Shinaz is completely exploited out of the UAE, which makes sense because on the southern side, so when you are looking to Sohar or Mossad, there is nothing that can compete with the UAE. Uh, and that was, that's a quotation, an end of the quotation. Uh, in January 2011, again, it, these tensions uh, came even further, went even further when the Oman security forces claimed that they had uncovered uh, a UAE firing within the Oman government and military. And the UAE denied uh, these allegations. In 2011, again, during the protests in Sohar and in Masrat, uh, rumors spread by Omani security circulated uh, text messages flourished about supposed Emirati involvement in the, in the organization of the protest. Um, later on, when securities for security forces cleared the roundabout, the roundabout and the protest, uh, in Sohar, there was a drastic increase of police controls or on all the roads going to the UAE. Again, uh, because of the fear of any political influence or political destabilization by the UAE on the northern part. Um, uh, among the, the people that I interviewed and were arrested uh, since 2011, a number explained to me that uh, they were interrogated about the fact that uh, which kind of connections they had with the UAE. Uh, did they know this, uh, some people in Iran, in uh, Sharjah and, uh, and Dubai? Uh, what was uh, their uh, frequency to go to the UAE and so on and so on? So that was something that was very, uh, even if we, um, we can, uh, I mean, that was something that was very much, uh, uh, that was very important in the minds of the Omani uh, authorities at the time of 2011. Um, <coughs> this possible involvement of the UAE in the process. Um, I don't know how many, how much time we have. Five minutes? Okay. Um, we can uh, still discuss about this, um, this issue. Uh, but I think that despite these elements uh, and the fact that Oman doesn't want to have any regional country interfering it in, it's in, in its own uh, regional uh, situation, uh, this has not had substantial damaging effect on, on Oman relations with the neighbors. Um, as you know, the GCC uh, decided to uh, uh, set up an aid package worth more than $10 billion uh, to help Oman cope with anti-government protests in 2011. 
in January 2014, so a few months ago, Sotan Travos ratified by decree the Security Pact signed in Riyadh by GCC interior ministers in November 2012, which strengthens cooperation and mutual assistance in security matters. So my last uh, point is that uh, the corollary of these two pillars of the Omani foreign policy. Um, so the, the corollary of the, of, the, of the desire to perpetuate an independent regional policy has been that Oman has never questioned its privileged partnership with Britain and the US, Britain in particular. Already in 1971, this close relation between, uh, or this close relationship with Britain was responsible in many ways uh, for the decision by Tarek Ben Taymour, the uncle of the Sultan, to resign from his position of Prime Minister. At that time, Tarek Ben Taymour wanted more independence from the, from the British. Um, also, um, um, uh, they have, I mean, British forces officially left Omani bases in 1977, but we know that um, uh, the regular renewal of the military cooperation agreements with both Britain and the US, and also joint Omani-British uh, military exercises, only confirmed Oman's alignment uh, with British parties, which is closer than, and Oman is, as you know, um, I mean, there, there was um, uh, a very interesting quote in the Times newspaper in 1974, the title was uh, uh, Oman, uh, Britain's oldest friend on the Arabian Peninsula. After the attack in the US uh, on September uh, on 9-11, uh, the US military president command dramatically increased. Um, in 2002, Oman advocated a diplomatic solution to the escalating crisis, but hosted up to three US Air Force expeditionary wings supporting military operations in Afghanistan and Iraq why the Masira and Sikh-based uh, military bases were the only ones in the Arabian Peninsula used in 2003 uh, as operational bases by the coalition during the air offensive against Iraq. Um, this, um, this special partnership with Britain and the US uh, is to be connected to the fact that Oman's best friends, let's say, in the region are or were Egypt under Hosni Mubarak and uh, Jordan's uh, Kim Hussein, I mean Kim Hussein uh, Jordan. Um, not only because uh, Kim Hussein supported uh, Sultan Qaboos very early in the Doha War, uh, but also because they share the same vision of the Israel-Palestine conflict. And under Hosni Mubarak, uh, there were close relations between Egypt and Oman, uh, as was shown, for instance, by Sultan Qaboos' frequent visit to Egypt for private or official, in private or official capacity, but also the constant help from the uh, Egyptian intelligence services in dismantling opposition cells or groups, and at least since 1994. Um, towards the US, it's interesting to notice that uh, as you know, maybe uh, in January 2006, Oman signed a bilateral free trade agreement uh, with the US, which came into force in 2009. Many services are excluded from it, and we can discuss about it. But it's particularly interesting to uh, notice that first, that US signed uh, bilateral free trade agreements in the Arabian Peninsula only with the two weakest countries, or the two economically weakest countries, that is Bahrain and Oman. 
and also, I would like to thank one dear, one of my friend and colleague, who uh, very wisely, I think, uh, explained to me that the US Oman free trade agreement is a great lens from which to see how Oman borrows its regional independence against the collateral of superpower appeasement. Um, in particular, it's interesting to notice that US policymakers um, classify the Oman-US trade agreement as a model agreement. In 2005, one month before the signature of the agreement, the Office of the US Trade Representative, uh, which is the US government agency responsible for developing and recommending US trade policy to the president, transmitted to the president a Congress report from different advisory committees, trade advisory committees. Um, support for the agreement, the US free trade agreement, was widespread among the committees. The agreement was unanimously praised. For instance, the, I, can, I quote, uh, the Agricultural Committee has, uh, stated that uh, it recognizes and commands this FTA as a useful model for the further liberalization of trade between the US and countries of the Persian Gulf and elsewhere in the, in the Middle East. So, that's to say that um, I don't want to say at all that um, Oman negotiator would have been uh, bad at negotiating this treaty, this agreement. That's not absolutely not my point, and we can see that Oman negotiator and diplomats are um, very skillful, and we could see that in 2013 and 14. What I mean that here is that there was so much pressure, political pressure, on the signing of this peace agreement on Oman that Oman could not do anything else than ratifying this agreement, which was very much in favor of the US. And uh, a number, it seems that a number of uh, African delegations and African uh, trade negotiators have considered on the other side that Oman-US free trade agreement is the country model for any free trade agreement that has to be signed with the US in the future. Um, and related to that, that I, I will finish by this, uh, the, the special relation with the, the UK is well known. Um, in December 2012, for instance, British Prime Minister David Cameron announced that Oman had signed a $4 billion uh, contract to buy 20 aircraft from the BA system. Um, uh, Alistair Burt, the British Secretary of State for Foreign uh, and Commonwealth uh, Office, Affairs, uh, visited, uh, visited Oman on a number of occasions in 2012. And in 2013, that was an occasion, again, to remind people that Britain remains the largest foreign investor in Oman at the moment. Um, so for me, the price of this independent foreign policy regionally and this will to preserve um, Oman's territory from any foreign interference is this uh, undisputable uh, relation with the UK and the US. Um, and the price is quite high. Defense and national security forces consumed 35% of the state expenditure in 2012 and represented again 11.7% of the GDP of Oman, which is one of the world's highest rates with other countries that uh, are not very um, interesting to, to mention here. According to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, Oman increased its defense spending by 50% in 2012, the largest of such increase worldwide. So that's the huge price that Oman has to pay for its regional independent policy. Thank you very much.